if you are not watching the communications, what are you doing? I mean, it, that's the, the bottom line. We're looking for these attacks as they're being attempted because certainly you don't want to have the physical change that the attacks are attempting to create within the environment be what has alerted you because it's it's too late. You know, once you've seen that, hey, why are engine three and four just not responding to anything anymore? That's that's too late. That is a massive, massive problem. Welcome to the Shoreline Maritime Risk Podcast. In each episode, we'll look at real-time case studies, current events, and speak to the experts dealing with critical risks at sea. What really happens when a crisis strikes at sea? And what can you do to protect your ship? Welcome to this, the 12th episode in the series of Shoreline's Maritime Risk Podcasts. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Antonio Johnny Martinelli. Johnny came to Shoreline's attention when he appeared in this year's Maritime Cyber Conference report in Florida. Johnny is currently the Director of Cyber Training with the Grimm Security Engineering Group, but he's most well known for his work on the American TSA Master Key Leaks between 2014 and 2018. Today we discuss remote vessel access, the potential consequences of a failure to detect malware embedded within a shipboard IT and OT systems, and the risk of virus migration from ship to shore and the possible consequences thereof. Good afternoon. Uh, welcome to this, the next in the series of Shoreline Maritime Risk Podcasts. I've got great pleasure today in speaking to Johnny Martinelli. Uh, Johnny is with Grimm in the US and he's a, an ICS researcher. Good afternoon to you, Johnny. Good afternoon. Thanks so much for having me here. This is excellent. Johnny, Really, you came to our attention when you were a speaker at the recent uh, Hack the Port in Florida, and and the event actually gained some prominence in the in the minds of the the, the wider uh, marine industry when they came up with this innovative idea of creating a ship-like model to hack into, and mm-hmm. I believe that they were, the intention was to somehow fill the ballast tanks on that and see if they could capsize it or some some other sorts of, sort of ambitions that the local hackers had at that particular event. I mean, is that is that an accurate thing to say about the intentions of that that exercise? Or yes, uh, by any means necessary, really. But you, you know, when you think about the, the idea, of course, is to raise awareness to the type of attacks that can occur and why they're problematic. I think you know a lot of folks when you think about hacking a ship, hacking the port, you still the mentality is often around IT versus OT. It's a lot of folks still think on the IT side. Well, they might make the computers unusable or something like that, but we've got backup plans. You know, we have physical overrides to still, you know, maintain steering of the ship and things like that. But the idea as I was saying was to really bring awareness towards saying like no, we can, you know, we can send commands to fill the ballast empty the ballast, you know, capsize the ship by way of that. You know, we can spoof GPS signals to send the ship's autopilot off course. If there's multiple engines on the ship, can we have them work against each other to cause, you know, physical damage to one or either uh, of them, or just burn out all the fuel while having the ship go nowhere? You know, the thing, things like that were the focus of what we were doing there. Just raising awareness, as I was saying, to the fact that things can be much worse than most folks initially imagine when they're presented with things like hacking a ship, you know, those concepts. 
Thanks for that. And I think there's a bit of a history of that in the sort of cyberspace. I mean, I think back to the, the Sony Pictures hack where Sony were, were hacked and, and sort of just really as a slap onto the wrist to say, hey, guys, you know, we can do this. You know, you need to pay attention to this because this is possible. And I guess that is the very nature of the ethical hacker and what they're trying to achieve is, to, as you say, is to try and raise some awareness within a particular industry or another about the vulnerabilities they face. So... On the back of that, really, and, and I presume that that exercise was successful and, and happened in fairly short order. I mean, mm -hmm. how easy is it to to penetrate shipboard OT systems and, and and take control of the ship in, in the ways you've already articulated? Well, that's that's uh, of course an answer that's going to vary greatly based on what type of vessel you're dealing with. And so, to to answer it broadly, I I've found that there are many more potential points of initial access to a vessel than most folks uh, even consider. Because again, going back to the hacking, you know, the, the, the IT mentality that most folks have, you think, okay, we're going to come in via an internet connection. Do these vessels even have an internet connection? And that's not necessarily the, the case. You know, when you're talking initial access, certainly radio some form of radio is going to be how you're going to get in there by, you know, these ships do have internet access, but it's, you know, it's not uh, Wi-Fi. It's, you know, they're out in the middle of the ocean. They need something more robust, more long range. They've got satellite, they've got cellular sometimes. And that's, you know, that's another thing to consider is even these, these points of access that may exist may not always exist. You know, certainly out in the middle of the Pacific, cellular is not going to be an option for these vessels. And so you may gain initial access via cellular, however, that you've got you're on the clock if the vessel is exiting port or exiting range of cellular, something like that. There's, but outside of that, yeah, you've got the various communication systems uh, that that vessel uses to send and receive data. And I'm not saying that any kind of, you know, communication system is inherently vulnerable to an attack and is inherently a point of initial access, but it can be. And that's what needs to be considered. You know, are we sure that this communication mechanism cannot be used to get a foothold on the vessel and then move laterally from there on out? There's a lot going on on that vessel. You know, you've got on the OT side, you've got your predictive analytics systems that are constantly sending real-time data back to, you know, your third-party vendors who may be running the, the predictive, predictive analytics and need real-time data from the vessel to be able to alert and say, hey, look, this, these components may fail soon. You may want to switch over to this backup system or something like that. You do have often internet access on these vessels. The crew wants that the crew may need that for you know there may be some various business needs where real-time internet access is required there's entertainment needs that the crews have if you're spending a month perhaps traversing the ocean on a vessel they're going to want their youtube and their, <laughs> their netflix and so in, you know in the internet access is of course the first place we think when we think of how would i hack a ship but there are my point here is that there are many other methods that there are many many other windows that may be left unlocked and we need to consider those and what i mean by consider those is not just be aware that they are there and be sure that no one can break in through those because you can never be positive that something cannot be leveraged for initial access leveraged for a breach and so you have to plan ahead for that you have to say what if this satellite comms system is where somebody is able to start getting data into the ship. What do we have 
downstream from that shipboard to be able to detect and respond to unexpected data, unexpected access. You know, we have on the IT side, we have this concept we call defense in depth, where you always assume a breach has occurred. You assume your security control has failed. What control do you then have downstream from there to protect against, to protect you in that instance? So you may say, well, we know that there's no way to breach this cellular system. There, there's no known attacks against this. No one's ever broken through this before. So can we declare that to be inherently secure? You cannot read your daily security news without seeing a reference to the, you know, the word O-day, these zero days, which are, of course, means of attack that previously were unheard of. And so one day, what if somebody does discover a way through research of figuring out how to break in through radio system X, Y, or Z? What will you do then? Are you ready for that? And that's that's where our mentality needs to be. Yeah, fascinating. I mean, I, I didn't even really give much thought to you know the the radio communications as a, as a way of accessing the vessel <laughs> you know but as you say i mean you know these vessels are becoming ever more connected and mm-hmm. you know as you as you mentioned there is pressure on ship owners to do more from a crew welfare perspective never has there been a greater pressure i would argue um especially off the back of the recent covid pandemic which is still ongoing in many parts of the world by the way we're still seeing shutdown of port in china and you know shanghai you know, deprivation of shore leave leads to time cooped up on board the ship. So even if, if they see fairers have a long seagoing passage, they're not necessarily going to get off at the other end, right? Um, Absolutely. You know, you've got then the heightened tensions of the Ukrainian conflict uh, with Russia. And, you know, you have a lot of Ukrainian seafarers with family within that war zone who are desperate really to hear something from their loved ones. And, you know, the ability really to have all always on access to the internet, even when in the middle of the ocean, is becoming an ever more pressing need of of the ship owner to secure that access of communication for their the welfare of their of their crew members. Really, so Absolutely. I think you know all of the all of this is pointing to the ever increasing connectivity and the, and the need really to be mindful of of how to shore up those defences, close those windows that you you have referred so articulately to being open. And really, you know, ensure that the, the the sort of cyber security integrity of that floating asset. Just moving on from there, I mean, gaining access to the ship is the is the first and initial aspect. And I guess what you're trying to say here is there's a need to monitor what's going on because, you know, as we saw with the recent Solar Winds hack, I mean, they got into private companies and into government agencies, and nobody knew they were there, right? And right. I guess they could stealthily observe what was going on and, and then plan what their next uh, moves are from their position of strength, almost like a Trojan horse within within these OT and IT systems. I mean, it, it, are you advocating the need to be monitoring sort of continually your, your cybersecurity posture against these different vectors? Absolutely. 100%. Continuous monitoring is one of the most critical, critical aspects of a uh, properly implemented uh, security plan. If you are not watching the communications, what are you doing? I mean, it, that's that's the the bottom line. We're looking for these attacks as they're being attempted, because certainly you don't want to have the physical change that the attacks are attempting to create within the environment be what has alerted you, because it's it's too late. You know, once you've seen that, hey, 
why are engine three and four just not responding to anything anymore? That's, that's too late. That is a massive, massive problem. And if they're able to gain control at that level, they're likely able to gain control of much more in the ship. And it's going to be diff- very difficult to kick them out without, you know, pulling the plug on how they got in, which may be a very bad idea, especially if, you know, the ship requires, say, internet access to to keep functioning properly. To just cut, cut that off is, you know, can be problematic. And certainly, you know, there's we don't have guarantees of internet access across the ocean as the days go on, we get closer and closer to this. I mean, if we, you want to talk about fully robotic and fully autonomous vessels, you know, we, we've been kicking around like, well, hey, your humans need that. You have, your humans have needs and your humans need to be able to communicate back to land and things like that. And so yeah. the response has been, well, we've got autonomous vessels coming. And it's like, well, no, those probably will need more data connectivity. And so you, you need to be monitoring what's coming in, what's going out and looking for anomalous behavior and alerting on that. And then the question comes up, well, alerting who? Whose job is it to respond to that? Do you have somebody on the ship? Do you have, you know, security, cybersecurity personnel on every vessel? Or is this something that is done back on land and then communicated down to the vessel? Hey, something weird is happening. Here's what we need you to do. Or is somebody back on land going to also do the incident response for the vessel in real time? And what happens if some malware gets put on that vessel in the first order of business is to disable the means that it got in by and, and thus perhaps disabling the ability for a remote monitoring and responding solution to even be brought into effect you know there's some scary things we can kick around here i don't know how terrified we want to make your listeners today <laughs> well, well no, i think i think we have to stick, stick with the here and now i mean certainly in the future we're looking at uh, autonomous yeah. vehicles but you right, know yeah. if we look far at, in the future I yeah, imagine. Right, yeah exactly if we look at the manned vehicles we have now and i mean it's an interesting point you make i mean it, it's almost like the sword of damocles when it comes to the the connectivity of the vessel because you know by cutting that off right at the time that you need to be communicating with the vessel about mm-hmm. how to sort out the and remedy the problem they're facing, you know, that you, you, you're sort of in a catch-22 situation very much there. You know, in, in terms of, okay, they are on board now, and we hear lots of dismissive comments when we're talking about cybersecurity. Well, yes, but I mean, we've got, you know, we've got air gaps between OT and IT. It's highly unlikely that through SCADA systems, you know, engine management systems, that report back to HQ, there's any two-way traffic or two-way migration of viruses. I mean, is that right? Or, I mean, what, what, what does the, the air gap look like between IT and OT? Is that, is that possible to jump that gap? Or how, how, how do you view that security? So that air gap is, is definitely a point of heated conversation. Um, in, from, from two sides, one, the air gaps are quickly being eliminated by way of regulatory standards, which are rolling out. If I can, you know, and the if I can reference America's NERC regulatory system, which is now used to have an enforcement of an air gap. It said you must air gap these types of systems from any type of IT system. And now the new versions which are rolling out are saying, no, you must connect those systems to IT for the purpose of having this continuing monitoring. And you do have secure means of doing that that are being described in some of these regulations. Other regulations, and I'm not going to go down an entire list of these, other regulations are just saying, hey, you have to make sure that you're continuously monitoring this through your IT systems and make sure you do it securely without describing a means of doing that. Uh, And so, well, if we want to say, if we want to assume that, yes, an air gap is an absolute perfect way of securing this, 
the other side of the coin is unfortunate that those air gaps are starting to be intentionally eliminated. And so this is a, this is a, a, a thing that has to be considered soon. Because again, that continuous monitoring, as we see cyber attacks more and more targeting SCADA, ICS, et cetera, we have to start being able to respond in real, real time in those by way of detecting that they happened. And that means connecting IT equipment up to the SCADA system, which is a sentence that for decades and decades has made us all shiver and get very sweaty and angry. And, uh, and now it's something that we're looking to have to do. The, the other uh, side of things we can talk about with, well, the air gap will protect all of us. I think it's, it's impossible to ha hear someone utter that sentence without somebody else quickly responding with the, what about Stuxnet response? And, you know, as we all know, Stuxnet was, did attack air gap systems by way of an infected IT system and affected engineers computer, which had been brought into the air gapped environment and connected up for the purposes of performing maintenance, what have you. And this is something that's absolutely done. You know, perhaps there isn't regular maintenance going on on board a moving vessel that's, you know, in service, but perhaps we, you know, if you have your engineers on board with infected laptops unknowingly and the, the malware and the creator of that malware is is perfectly happy to just simply wait for something to break on that vessel, which we all know does happen, will happen. And then that engineer will eventually connect the laptop up to this or that. And then you've got your Stuxnet, but you know, it's Stuxnet aboard a vessel. And yes, it was programmed to look for a specific things that speak specific protocols, et cetera, et cetera. And you do have to kind of put together a perfect storm scenario, but it, it's not, that perfect of a storm, the, the, the perfect storm does not have that many aspects to it. These are still OT devices. These devices still speak standard protocols. We can still cause a lot of problems if by simply guessing what devices might be on board, you know, with, with how not uncommon it is to have a piece of malware be three, 400 megabytes we can pack a lot of code that looks for a lot of things in those. And you won't, certainly none of us would notice a missing three or 400 megabytes of hard disk space on our laptops now, you know, versus 20 years ago, that would have been devastating. So it's, it's really easy to hide something massive that would look for a lot of things, an infected system. And you say, well, yeah, you, you also have to target those engineers and you have to find out who they are and you have to infect the systems. I can point back to Stuxnet again, which which I understand may be an argument many folks are getting tired of, but until it it becomes irrelevant or even significantly irrelevant, we have to keep keep focusing on that. You know, yeah. my, my this that Stuxnet argument again is that it's it's still you can find Stuxnet on hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of computers around the globe still currently because it was so virulent and it doesn't affect the average user doesn't affect URI on our personal laptops because it's looking for, you know, uh, nuclear equipment. So nobody notices that it's there. I guess the Stuxnet argument, it, it leads us nicely into really the, the next line of questioning really is, which is around, you know, the threat actors and the intention and motivation um, of getting on board these vessels. I mean, you know, in discussions I've had with ship owners, it's very much internalized, you know, why would somebody want to attack my company? You know, what's the mm -hmm. motivation? What's the intention of that? But but the reality, and if we look at it from the through the lens of Stuxnet, 
and if we sort of broaden out our gaze into the strategic importance of the global supply chain, if you have a nation state threat actor who wants to disrupt, for example, you know, a another US port, then what, what better way to embed some form of code on board a vessel going to that port, which is then going to migrate across internet connections within the port into the port infrastructure and give them access to <laughs> all, all, all avenues of disruption within that port area. I mean, I guess this is something that's the, the US administration, the US Coast Guard, uh, the NSA are all mindful of really is about how one protects one's borders when you've got multiple different foreign flag vessels visiting different, you know, hundreds of ports each day. And I guess that's what's given rise to the, the heightened port state control around the need for cybersecurity monitoring reporting by the ship's master and crew before they enter port now to say whether they're aware of any issues they may have on board from a, a cybersecurity perspective. I mean, do you have any thoughts around, around those extended issues? That uh, there's a lot of issues being discussed in that in, in all of that. And so, I mean, you've got the one issue of, you know, let's, let's talk about protecting our borders. Once you start including digital assets, IT, OT, what have you, your borders now become very difficult to define uh, and identify as, you know, anybody who runs any kind of digital equipment knows that asset management, you know, asset inventory is the number one thing that everybody is very poor at. And if you don't know what you have, you don't know what you can secure. And if you don't know what you have, you don't know what your border looks like. Your border is, you know, the, the concerns around your border are every point of entry, digital or otherwise. And if you don't know what your digital points of entry are, you don't know where your border lies and you can't protect it. And that's just one aspect. Um, if you want to go all the way back to the, the mention of, you know, vessel owners or operators saying, well, who, who, why would anyone bother with me? I'm just bringing a small amount of this uninteresting product into this uninteresting country, what have you. At the very, the very, very least, your vessel is, it's a very large, one, it's a projectile, uh, if you want to consider it that way. Two, it's a very large, potentially Im immovable object. And so the concern may not even be you know, why would someone attack me? Why would somebody attack my company? Why would somebody attack a ship that's carrying this uninteresting stuff on it? And you could bring it right back to let's another, hopefully not tired argument of let's look at the Suez Canal incident. You know, it doesn't matter who operates this, this vessel or what's on it. What matters is I can cram it into the Suez Canal and disrupt not just a single country's economy, but disrupt a global economy. We, you know, there, there are economists currently who estimate that we have not yet to even begun to feel the effects of the Suez Canal incident yet. You know, they're saying we're going to start seeing those this year, next year, even though it's several years old at this point, just because that's how slow that, you know, supply chain moves. And, and that's nuts. And so when you consider like what yeah, and the Suez Canal, yeah, that's an extreme scenario and might be a little difficult to pull off. But let's go, let's bring it back down to local economies, individual countries' economies. What if you could, to use it as a verb, Suez Canal, uh, a major port in a, any number of the major, the major ports along, you know, the borders of Africa or every continent, the US, you know, just, just 
cramming a ship into into a place where it wasn't expected to be in a very inconvenient manner can cause a lot of cascading issues. And so, and, th and that's just ignoring who owns the ship, what it was used for, what it was carrying and why. But if you want to even get into those instances, I mean, corporate espionage is massive on a global scale. Being able to disrupt a company's economy by capsizing a boat, just, you know, filling and emptying the ballast quickly and knocking it over is can be a huge deal for that company itself and not just and lost product but let's talk about cleanup let's talk about all of those hondas i believe it were that got dumped into the ocean just off the the coast of georgia recently just to an improperly balanced load you know the loss of product on that ship is only a tiny yeah. tiny amount of company that companies or money that company is going to lose i think the point you're making is, is a very well found point here it's it's about not internalizing the risk it's about externalizing the whys and wherefores of of the intention of the bad actors here and, and the yes. fact that many ship owners may find themselves as collateral damage by you know innocent bystanders in a much bigger play right where yes, you, know, yes. you, you refer to sort of global socio-economic issues right now which you know, we've had so many black swans flying by the window recently. It's hard, it's hard to keep up with them. What with the, you know, the yeah. COVID pandemic and, you know, and now, now the Russian situation, we've had all sorts of political unrest and activism um, and all the rest of it around the world. We had the Arab Spring not so long ago. You know, we've got, we've got you know, a change in this. Well, you know, the, the, the global supply, supply chain has become stretched in a way. We've got the sanctions issues now around a lot of You've got many container ships maxed out trying to catch up with the backlog from from all of the port congestion arising as a consequence of of the covid situation mm -hmm. around the world and, and and frankly speaking you know what better way to disrupt a, a country's economy than disrupting that global supply chain even further and as you said there's many easy ways now as evidenced by the ever given in the Suez canal that you you find yourself a convenient choke point with a big enough um, piece of metal to stick across it and um, yeah. and you cause all sorts of trouble hey i think you know I, it's, johnny it's been fascinating talking to you i mean I, we could go on i could go on for a, as, as long as you want talking about these things as i find it immensely interesting and i feel as though we're only just scratching the surface of all of this we and, are you yeah. know and many of us in you know in, in in my industry which is shipping which i you know i hold very close to my heart you know it's something that we really need to get up to speed with as soon as possible. Um, we tend to be late adopters in this in this industry. We mm -hmm. tend to be risk tolerant. I mean, most of um, most of the ship owners that we know are entrepreneurial. They've got a very good perception of the perils of the sea and the risks that they face ordinarily as a consequence of operating their vessels around the world. But I think this as the asymmetry of this risk and, and and the way that it sort of unfolds exponentially is something that. You know, risk managers have got really to get to grips with and, and, and apply the requisite resource, the monitoring, the cybersecurity measures, the risk transfer measures, and really have some sort of holistic plan to how to deal with this. Not least because they're going to have to be accountable at some point to either a regulator or a port state control official that's going to going to grant them or not grant them access to the port they need to get to to discharge the cargo. So, yeah. Thank you very much for, for, for your time, for your, for your knowledge. It's been fascinating. Thank you. Thank you for giving me a, a podium to get this information out to a greater number of people who really need to hear it. It's much appreciated from the security researcher side of things. Thank you so much.
we'd like to thank the show's sponsor, Maritime Insurance Solutions Limited. The world and life at sea is changing on a daily basis. Shipping companies and owners are facing evolving threats from political risk to increased maritime cyber risk. Shoreline has the maritime insurance answers you need to make sure your company is covered when crisis strikes. Shoreline are providers of specialist maritime cybercrime and crisis response insurance policies. To learn more about these specialist covers, visit www.shoreline.bm today.